Well, good morning. Before I start with my message this morning, I want to acknowledge the fact that a number of you may be wondering what I'm doing up here, since this is not part of normally what I do as one of the elders here at Grace Chapel. About a year ago, God began to put on my heart a desire to, to learn to preach from the pulpit. So a few months ago, I uh, brought it up with the elder board, and they thought it was appropriate for me to begin to, to be trained in this. And so I just want to thank them for their confidence in me over the last few months. I want to thank Matt for his uh, guidance through the process, and especially thank David Mingle, who mentored me through this, uh, this process. I told him I was going to say that if, uh, if you find this message to be challenging and a blessing to you, then may God get the glory. If it falls flat on your face, you can blame David. It's all his fault. So. <laughs> And I'm sticking with that story. <laughs> so this Christmas season is seen as a time full of joy and happiness. It's a time of decorating our houses with a tree, indoor and outdoor lights, and these days with inflatable characters on our lawn. As I was driving here this morning through Springfield, someone had a full-size tractor on their yard that I guess they brought in just for decoration. It had a big sign that said joy on it. So I don't know where a tractor came from, but now even that's a Christmas decoration. It's a time when we gather with friends and family and have celebrations at work and at school. It's a time of giving and receiving gifts with the excitement of opening colorfully wrapped presents. But sometimes it can be difficult to experience this joy when there are difficult circumstances in our lives, such as ongoing health problems that interfere with our festivities, having a low-paying job, or no job at all. Now that's a way to start. Matt said, I don't know if that's an omen. I don't know, maybe I should sit down, but. <laughs> so we may have a low paying job or no job at all that makes it difficult to buy even simple presents for those we love. Maybe our personal life is going well, but we look around at the world around us and we see a nation divided by political arguments discrimination, gun violence, and bad economic news. Or we look around the world and we see war, a changing climate, famine, and oppression. We may be filled with a feeling that this is not the way that things are supposed to be at Christmas, or any time of year for that matter. We have a longing for something better, for the experience of joy. So we can define joy as the emotion evoked by well-being success or good fortune, or by the prospect of possessing what one desires, what we might also call delight. So how are we supposed to experience this delight, this joy at Christmas in the midst of a broken, fallen world? Well, we're going to look at what the prophet Isaiah has to say about experiencing joy. Isaiah was writing at a time when the nation of Israel was feeling pretty much the same way that we do now. The kingdom was split in two between the nations of Israel and Judah. There was great division within the nation. During the period of his writing, the nation of Assyria had conquered Israel and taken them into captivity. It was a time of great suffering, political turmoil, and hostile nations invading and seeking to conquer. The nation went from a high point with the kings of David and Solomon, but had since had a series of leaders with mixed track records. While some followed God, for many there was abuse of power, injustice, and the haves taking advantage of the have-nots. There was a feeling that this was not the way things were supposed to be. They were the chosen people. This was the promised land, 
These problems should not be happening. This was the context in which Isaiah was living and in which he wrote a message of joy. Today we want to understand Isaiah's message so that we too can know where to find joy at Christmas and throughout the year. So before we take a look at God's word, let's just take a moment to pray. Lord, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for the people who are gathered here to hear your word. We do have a longing for joy, Lord. Uh, we all want to experience that joy. And we just pray, Lord, that you would speak to us through your word this morning, that we would each come away with a greater sense of the joy that we can have in you. In your name we pray. So if you could go ahead and turn your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 12. It's page 576 in the Pew Bibles, page 684 in the large print Bibles. Or it's on the screens here. You will say in that day, I will give thanks to you, O Lord. For though you were angry with me, your anger turned away that you might comfort me. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and will not be afraid, for the Lord God is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. With joy you will draw from the waters from the wells of you will draw water from the wells of salvation, and you will say in that day, Give thanks to the Lord, call upon his name, make known his deeds among the peoples, proclaim that his name is exalted. Sing praises to the Lord, for he has done gloriously. Let this be made known in all the earth. Shout and sing for joy, O inhabitant of Zion, for great in your midst is the Holy One of Israel. So as we look at this chapter, what may first strike us is just how short it is with only six verses. But they're jam-packed with meaning. And I first I want to point out there's a very interesting repetition between verses 1 to 3 and verses 4 to 6. So first, they both start with the phrase, you will say in that day. So we need to ask ourselves, what day is that? If you look back at the earlier chapters of Isaiah, the first 11 chapters that precede this passage, we see that he spends much of his time writing pronouncement, pronouncing judgment on the nation of Israel. He calls them out for failing to follow God, for worshiping false idols, for oppressing the poor and weak, and many other sins. He says that like the rest of the nation of Israel, they too will be taken into captivity by the nation of Babylon. At the end of chapter 6, uh, Isaiah says that Israel will be like the stump of a tree that's been chopped down. What a powerful image for a vibrant living tree to be cut down to almost nothing. But Isaiah also has an incredible message of promise. In chapter 7, Isaiah prophesies, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. As you may know, the name Emmanuel means God with us, a point that I'll be coming back to in just a little bit. This statement is followed by the phrase, in that day, four times in a row, each time describing the conquest of Israel's enemies and future prosperity of God's people. A little later in chapter 11, Isaiah prophesies, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. So here we see again the stump that remained of Israel, but this time producing a branch, which we now know is a reference to Jesus. 
And chapter 11 goes on to describe a future time, twice saying in that day, when God will rescue his people, punish the nations that oppress them, and restore the Israelites into a single united kingdom. What a wonderful message of hope for his people. So it is that future day when Emmanuel, the branch from the stump of Israel, will come to establish a new kingdom for his people that is the foundation for the in that day of chapter 12. So with that frame of reference in mind, let's look back at the repeating pattern of this chapter. After the you will say in that day of each half, we move on to giving thanks. So in the rest of verse 1, it says, I will give thanks to you, O Lord. For though you were angry with me, your anger turned away that you might comfort me. Isaiah prophesied that they will give thanks for God's rescue, that God turned away his anger from them and comforted them. Why was God angry with them? Well, because of their repeated rejection of him, their continuous rebellion and choosing to go their own way instead of following God. We've all had the experience of having someone be very angry with us, and usually that's not a good feeling. I don't know about you, but I really don't like knowing that someone's angry with me, and it's a relief when I know their anger has passed. Imagine how much worse it is when God is the one who is angry with you, and how much more of a relief and a comfort when that anger passes. But although God had good reason to be angry with his people, he chose to save them and dwell with them instead. So then in verse 4, we also see it says, Give thanks to the Lord. Call upon his name. Make known his deeds among the peoples. Proclaim that his name is exalted. Here we see that being thankful is followed by telling others about the wonderful things that God has done and how awesome he is. When we experience relief from suffering, it's just natural to want to tell others about what has happened, to share the news with them, so that they too can experience this relief. Next in this, each half, we see giving praise to God. In verse 2, Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and will not be afraid. For the Lord God is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. And then in verse 5, Sing praise to the Lord, for he has done gloriously. Let this be made known in all the earth. So after expressing thanks to God, his people will proclaim his praise in word and song. When a person does something wonderful for us, we naturally think very highly of them and want to sing their praises. How much more would we want to praise God if he rescues us from suffering and oppression? So each half then moves on to a statement of joy. And it's here that I want to camp out for the remainder of the message. First, Isaiah talks about finding joy in our salvation. So in verse 3, it says, With joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. So what does that mean? What does it mean to draw water from the wells of salvation? Well, if you look at the verse right before this, it starts talking about salvation and has a very interesting contrast. First is the statement that God is my salvation, meaning now, in the present, I am saved by God. When Isaiah started with the you will say at the beginning of this chapter, the you is a follower of God. It's one of his people, a believer. As a follower of Christ, I am saved, so I can trust God and not be afraid because of that salvation. 
if you are a follower of God, you too can say that you are saved in the present. But a moment later, Isaiah says, God has become my salvation, referring to salvation as something in the past, something that's already done. We are saved because of the death of Jesus on the cross in the past, 2,000 years ago. His death was once for all. But this whole passage is also referring to something in the future for his people, indicating that salvation is something yet to come for them. So Isaiah describes salvation as something that occurs in the past, present, and future. And this is true for us as followers of Christ. We have been saved, and that very fact is a reason for joy. But salvation is not just a one-time event that happened in the past, but something we need every day because we continue to live in a fallen state. We need to turn to God every day, or as Isaiah expresses in verse 3, we need to draw water from the wells of salvation. If you think about at this, the time of this writing when people had to actually travel to a well to get water, wouldn't they have loved if they could just draw water once and never have to go again? Wouldn't it be great for us if we could just have a drink of water today and never be thirsty or need to drink again? But it doesn't work that way. We need to return to drink every day if we are just to survive. In the same way, we need to follow Jesus each and every day, not just as a one-time event. There's also a future aspect of our salvation, when Jesus will return and restore all things. While we can be saved now, we still live in a fallen, broken world, but we can look forward to the day when Jesus will return and restore all of creation to the way it's supposed to be. There's tremendous joy in delighting in the past, present, and future salvation of God. Now, if we return to verse 6, here Isaiah talks about the joy of God's presence. Shout and sing for joy, O inhabitant of Zion, for great in your midst is the Holy One of Israel. This verse tells us that a reason for joy is the greatness of God. He is the creator of the universe, the one who sustains all life. We can look around at the wonder of creation and see his handiwork. But God doesn't choose to work behind the scenes, remaining distant from us. God is great in our midst, as Isaiah said. He chooses to dwell among his people. He desires to be with us and for us to be with him. But what does that mean? What does it mean for God to dwell in our midst? He's always wanted to dwell with us, but this dwelling has taken different forms over the course of the story of the Bible. Back at the beginning in the Garden of Eden, God literally walked in the garden with his people, with Adam and Eve. He was fully present with them and lived in their midst until they rebelled and broke the relationship. For many centuries afterward, God dwelt with his people through the tabernacle and the temple, both of which had an inner room called the most holy place, where God's presence was most fully expressed. God lived among his people, but only the high priest could actually go into his presence, and even then only under very specific circumstances. And at the end of the Bible, we can look forward in the book of Revelation, where it tells us that God will once again dwell personally with his people. He will restore our relationship with him through Jesus coming back for us. So we can find joy in delighting that the God of the universe 
desires to dwell with us and to do great things among us. So here we are presented with two ways to experience joy, delighting in a God who saves and delighting in a God who dwells with us. But I find that it's difficult to talk about joy without also mentioning hope, because one way to think about joy is that it's the fulfillment of our ultimate hopes. So where do we place our hope in our search for joy? One option is to rely on optimism. I tend to be a very optimistic person. I very frequently say things like, it's gonna be fine, everything's gonna work out, it's all gonna be okay. And you know what, a lot of the times I'm right. <laughs> but it's getting more and more difficult to feel optimistic in the world that we live in. We can rely on human progress. We've made amazing scientific and technological advances. And the pace of discovery and change just gets faster and faster. Surely, we're going to be able to figure out solutions to the world's problems. But it doesn't seem like the more advanced we get, or doesn't it seem like the more advanced we get, the more problems we have? The very technologies that some, solve some problems create others. Look at our phones. We carry amazing technology in the power of our hands that gives us the access to unlimited information, lets us shop and purchase things that we need. We, it allows us to take pictures of the beauty around us to share with friends and family, and it even makes phone calls. But the same technology can distract us from what's important around us, leaving us feeling more socially isolated and lonely rather than more connected. And it can give us access to content that we really should not be seeing in the first place. Optimism and human progress have their benefits, but they cannot lead us to a lasting joy that can only be found in God. For the Israelites, joy would come from out of centuries of difficulty. But notice Isaiah does not say that they will experience joy because everything will go well with them going forward. We see that although Isaiah is prophesying an improvement in their circumstances, he is clear that joy would come from God's salvation and presence, not from the circumstances. In other words, joy comes from not, not from our worldly circumstances, but only from delighting in a God who saves us and dwells with us regardless of our circumstances. This tells us something about the essence of what joy is and also what it is not. Joy is not the same thing as happiness. Happiness is when we feel delight because of our circumstances. This sounds a lot like the way that I defined joy earlier, as delighting in well-being, in success, or good fortune, or by the prospect of possessing what one desires. We feel happy because we just spent time with a good friend, we just had a really good meal, we just got a good grade on a test, or we had a relaxing vacation. Happiness is a wonderful thing, but it's dependent on our circumstances and usually implies an absence of trouble or difficulties. These are all wonderful things that God provides for our pleasure, but joy is something different. We can experience joy even in the midst of difficult circumstances because it is dependent on who God is and his salvation and dwelling among us, not on our experiences in life. We often pursue happiness, but we miss out on the greater joy we could be experiencing. You could argue that the pursuit of happiness can actually get in the way 
of experiencing joy because it keeps us focused on our circumstances and not on God. As I was preparing this, it made me think of an analogy. Uh, so I grew up about 10 minutes from here in, in the town of Wallingford, and we would occasionally go up into the mountains, up into the Poconos uh, for vacation or, or just to enjoy the beauty of the mountains. Then I moved at one point in my life to California to go to school where I met my wife, and we used to go up to the Sierra Nevada mountains, up to Yosemite, where you can sit in the beautiful Yosemite Valley and look up at these massive 5,000-foot cliffs of granite. And the Sierra's taught me what mountains really look like. <laughs> so then when we moved back to this area, uh, it was our anniversary, and I said, why don't we go up to the Poconos for the weekend? And she said, great. My parents watched our, our daughter. And we were driving up, and she said, when are we going to get to the mountains? I said, we're here. This is it. But now, compared to the Sierra Nevadas, the Poconos just were not the same thing. And that's a lot like happiness and joy. Happiness is like the Poconos. They're wonderful. The Poconos are beautiful. I still enjoy going up there to this day. But they're, they're not the Sierra Nevadas which are not the Alps, which are at Mount Everest, that when we settle for the Poconos, we may miss out on that greater joy that can come. Um, so contrasting joy and happiness is also something that's really struck me in working through this passage, because I spent a lot of effort over the years trying to avoid the common mistakes that people make in their life, to be wise about my life, uh, to try to, uh, to live a life of happiness and comfort. I spent a lot of time in school. I was able to get a good job. I've lived comfortably, but within my means, to avoid financial stress. I've taken reasonably good care of my body, although not as much as I should to try to stay healthy. I've generally made good decisions, and I've experienced a good deal of happiness in my life. But it's easy for me to feel comfortable in that lifestyle and not seek after the greater experience of joy. I've often settled for the Poconos by focusing on happiness when I could be in the Sierras or the Alps by focusing on the only true source of joy, a God who saves and dwells with us. So what does this all have to do with Christmas? Remember the question I asked at the beginning. How can we experience joy at Christmas in the midst of a broken world? Let's now take a look at the verses that were read earlier about the shepherds out in the field tending their sheep. So if you could turn back to Luke 2, 8 to 11, which is page 857 in your Bible. As, we, as this was read earlier, we heard, and in the same region there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. So what were the angels announcing here? Well, they were announcing at least two things. First, they were announcing the birth of a savior, the one who would finally rescue God's people. 
Here we see the fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy. But what would the Savior be like? Surely he was going to grow up to be a great military leader who could defeat the Romans and establish a new earthly kingdom where God would live among them in the temple. After centuries of suffering, there was finally going to be salvation. Surely this was joyful news for the shepherds. But this was not God's plan. He had a better way. The angels were also proclaiming that this Savior was born in their midst. But they didn't understand that this Savior, Jesus, was God himself dwelling among them. That he would live among them personally. Here we come back to the name prophesied by Isaiah that he would be called Emmanuel, God with us. Jesus physically dwelt with us in the past. As we sang earlier in the, the last song, Emmanuel, God with us. Emmanuel, King Jesus, the Savior of the world, is born. God also continually dwells with us through his spirit, which lives, who, who lives in those of us who are his followers. And God will dwell with us again in the future, where the original relationship we saw in the Garden of Eden will be restored. The angels were proclaiming great joy about God's salvation and presence. Now you may be saying, this all sounds great. I know that I'm saved. I know that God dwells with me. And I have a hope for a future eternity where all things will be restored. But I just don't feel full of joy. Does this mean I'm not really saved? What am I doing wrong? It is true that joy is partly an emotion partly something that we feel. And sometimes we feel full of joy to an extent that can sometimes be overwhelming. But you can't force yourself to feel joy or any other emotion for that matter. And joy is much more than just an emotion. Joy is also a belief, a way of thinking about our God. Joy is knowledge of who God is and what he has done for us. Sometimes that knowledge leads to an emotional feeling, but sometimes it does not. Joy is also an action. Many of the Bible verses about joy actually use the term rejoice, which means to express joy. We rejoice inwardly when we think about God's salvation and presence, who he is and what he's done for us. We also rejoice outwardly, such as through our songs of praise, and celebrating with other believers. In his letter to the church in Philippi, Paul told them, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. We can rejoice in the Lord because of who God is, rather than rejoicing in my circumstances, rejoicing in my feelings, or rejoicing in my optimism for the future. He didn't say rejoice when you feel joyful, uh, but rather to rejoice always, meaning we can express joy in our daily lives wherever we are and whatever we are doing. Sometimes we experience joy as a feeling, a way of thinking, and an action all together, and those are awesome moments. But just because we don't feel joyful does not mean we cannot delight in a God who saves and dwells with us. Now perhaps you're not a follower of Christ, but you, you're saying, I want to experience joy. You can invest a lot of energy into things such as your family, your job, school, friendships, enjoyment, and you may experience a lot of happiness. 
But ultimately, all of these things will fall short of the joy that can only come from the salvation of God. You can choose to change direction and delight in the salvation that comes from Jesus, who died and rose again to save us from our sins and restore a relationship with us. You can find God, find joy in a God who created the universe and yet chooses to dwell among us so that we can live in his presence forever. One week from today, we'll be celebrating the birth of Jesus, our Savior, Emmanuel, God with us. Let us look to him and what he has done for us and not to our circumstances, to joy and not just to happiness. Let us move beyond the picture of Christmas that we see in movies and on TV and climb to new heights of joy by delighting in God who saves and dwells with us for now and forever. The worship team will be coming up in a moment to lead us in singing joy to the world, the Lord is come. Let earth receive her king. Let every heart prepare him room. Let's take a moment to pray and ask that God would clear room in our hearts, in our minds, so we can sing with joy that the Lord has come and that he will come again. Lord, we thank you that we can experience joy through you. You are a God who saves. You are a God who dwells among his people, and we can never fully comprehend what that means. But Lord, help us to seek after that joy, to focus on who you are, even in the midst of our difficult circumstances. We thank you, Lord, for the opportunity to sing in praise, to outwardly rejoice in who you are as we sing about the great joy that we can experience from your salvation and from your presence in our lives. Amen.